Welcome to the Washington Union Alliance Church Podcast, an archive of our recorded sermons. We're a Christian and Missionary Alliance Church located in Newcastle, Pennsylvania. For more information, go to wuac.org. In the 1930s, Mr. Ivy Lee was a management consultant and an aggressive and self-confident man. By stealth, he wangled an interview with Charles Schwab, the president of Bethlehem Steel, who was no less self-assured, being one of the most powerful men in the world at the time. During the conversation, Lee asserted that if the management of Bethlehem Steel would follow his advice, the company's operations would be improved and then profits would increase. And Schwab responded, Mr. Lee, if you can show us a way to get more things done... I'd be glad to listen. And if it works, I'll pay you whatever you ask within reason. Lee handed Schwab a blank piece of paper and said, write down the most important things that you have to do tomorrow. And Schwab did so. Now, Lee continued, number them of importance. And Schwab did so. Tomorrow morning, start on number one with it until you complete it. And then go to number two, and then go to number three, and go to number four, and so on. And don't worry if you haven't completed everything by the end of the day. At least you have, will have completed the most important projects, and you do that every single day. And after you've been convinced of the value of this system, have others try it. Try it as long as you like. And then concluded Lee, send me your check for whatever you think the idea is worth. <laughs> this is a very simple idea, and I doubt it was very original to Lee. Might have well been practiced by maybe the Babylonians or the people in the Roman Empire or some of the medieval works in that that moment in time. But at any rate, a few weeks later, Charles Schwab sent Ivy Lee a check for $25,000, which is an astronomical amount during the 30s. And he said it was the most profitable lesson he had ever learned in his long business career. In the cold, hard business world, There are few lessons more important than learning how to prioritize and live by those priorities. The degree of one's expertise in this matter is directly related to the success or failure of one's future. And we do the same as Christians. We recognize and maintain spiritual priorities that maintain considerable significance in our lives. And some of us and some have maybe we haven't given that a thought to life's priorities. Maybe we haven't given that quite a bit of a thought as to what the priority is maybe for us spiritually. And, or maybe we've chosen some of the wrong priorities. Maybe we've kind of strayed away from what is truly essential in our Christian life and Christian walk. And still others have the right priorities and perspective, but maybe not exactly have maybe the wisdom or self-control to live by such priorities. You see, John chapter 21, the end of this gospel, gives us a model of what priority looks like, what this thing called following Christ actually involves and puts first and foremost. And we've been in a series looking at the people after Jesus, was, after Jesus died and his post-resurrection appearances. It is telling as to who the kinds of people Jesus interacts with, and it's telling as to the kind of people who he interacted with. And those early disciples before he'd appeared to them, they had experienced a ton of emotions. Like they'd experienced a ton of things. After they had followed Jesus, faithfully followed him, they'd experienced the death of faith, the death of experience, relationships, and expectations. And this all fell when Jesus died. And before he appeared to them, they had experienced all the weight of the emotions of the person that they had followed. And maybe those expectations this morning line the thoughts of your heart. Maybe you've experienced the death of relationships or experience. You've experienced a loss so great. 
Maybe life has just hit you like a ton of bricks, and life is not what you'd hope for. And maybe the expectations of everything, maybe it's your job, maybe it's your family, the expectations of people perhaps putting on your family or your friends put on you. And maybe you're rethinking today those countless times just those expectations in life have not turned out the way you had hoped it to be. And so many of, the, many of those emotions were the same following that first Easter. And maybe you have said, and we have said this, what's next for me? Easter happened and what's next? What do I do? What does this look like? And I'm glad you're here. If you're asking that question, what is next? What does it look like? And so we've walked through some of the things and some of the people in which Jesus interacts with. It's telling as to who the kinds of people uh, Jesus meets on those days after the resurrection. Maybe you're like, man, I can't understand. You rose from the dead, but what's next? What about the despair I'm experiencing? What about the life that I'd hoped for and promised for on Easter? Like, what about this? Nothing's really changed Maybe you're asking, what's next? Well, I'm glad that you're here today. And uh, the disciples asked many of those same questions uh, long ago. The, the resurrection, we've said this, that the resurrection, and this is when Jesus appeared to people, this backs this up, that the resurrection was deeply personal, deeply personal, and it touches ordinary lives with tremendous power. And as we go to the scriptures today, we're reminded that the resurrection church is good news, church. The resurrection is deeply personal, and it's deeply personal for all of us. And the resurrection, Jesus can touch each one of our lives with his spirit by the resurrection and give us new life. That's good news. Deeply personal. Deeply personal. We'll find that today in this account. Okay, here's a big picture of John chapter 21. John 21. And uh, just this picture of what we've talked about. We've looked at the very first section of John 21 last week. And just the scene prior, Jesus meets the disciples in a failed failed fishing expedition. They went all night without a catch of fish, okay? So we know that Jesus called these disciples, and we know that he called them. They were fishermen. That was their occupation, and they went through a whole night of fishing, Um, and I don't know. I'm not a fisherman, but I hear that the fish bite often at night, but they went a full night without biting, and so this was a failed fishing expedition. Jesus is standing about 100 yards from shore. They're really not sure if, he's, if, he, if that's Jesus or not. And he calls them to throw their nets on the other side of the boat. Disappointment was the emotion written on their faces. They spent all night trying to catch fish, nothing. And to think that's all that they knew growing up, to think that that's your job, your occupation, and to think that, man, you, that's kind of... You, it's think that that's all they did growing up. These guys were the pros at fishing. And Jesus tells them to throw the net on the other side, and they obey it. Then there's this miraculous catch of fish. Peter gets out of the boat, jumps into the cold, unknown, dark water, and swims as hard as he can toward Jesus. Anyone remember the sound effects I made last week when he was like, you know, okay. Um, sometimes we, like, remember sermons. Sometimes the, the, everyone's like, People are like, I remember when you said, said something about Rice Krispie treats in your sermon. Or like, I remember when you made that noise and like this. And I'm like, well, yeah, you know, it's like, okay. Or like, I remember when you said this or like you ran down the aisle. No, I'm kidding. Um, this like, that's the stuff they remember from the sermon. Um, or whatever. Anyway, um, <laughs> that's okay. Peter gets out of this boat, jumps into the cold, unknown, dark water, swims as fast as he can to Jesus. Jesus is there on shore, ready to serve them breakfast. Really good story. Reread it this week if you have time. Um, And swims to Jesus. Jesus is there on shore, ready to serve them breakfast. Anyone have fish for breakfast before? Anyone have fish for breakfast? 
Okay, a little strange, but that's okay. Um, I've never had, um, over fire, over burning coals, I've never had fish for breakfast. Um, and we are reminded of our deep dependence on Christ in this story. Church, just, just, we are reminded that without Christ, we can't do anything. And we find that in John 15, 5. We can know so many things about following Christ, about the right tactics or the right strategies. Without, we can know so many things about this, about ministry. But the Lord says, apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. And the called church is to make disciples and go fish. And sometimes those fish don't bite. Anyone know, been a fisherman, you know that the fish sometimes don't bite. But we keep on fishing, and we keep on fishing. The imperative of this is that Jesus calls us. You can't do, we cannot do anything apart from Jesus, nothing apart from him, apart from, apart from the Lord. Okay, if you have your Bible, you can go there in John 21. It's going to be on 769 in the Bible in front of you. It'll be on the screen behind me. Um, if you are visiting with us this morning, we're glad that you're here. We at this church we value the preaching and teaching of the scriptures. Make sure you find one, a church that does the same, that preaches and teaches the scriptures faithfully. In John 21, we're going to start in verse 15 together. And it says this, When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to them, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus had asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. <laughs> Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you don't want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. So finally, we see this. The breakfast was finished and Jesus spoke. And Peter's heart probably skipped a beat. When he heard the vo Lord's voice recorded in verse 15, it says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And the Lord was asking, Simon, do you really love me? Do you truly love me? After all that's happened, after all the track record of Peter, do you love me? Can you truly love me? And do you love me more than all these disciples? John does not say what ran through Peter's mind at these words, but from our own experience, we can imagine what Peter must have felt like here. His heart probably began to race, probably pretty tense, a tense moment. His stomach churned, his cheeks burned, his eyes misted. We can understand what Peter must have felt like in this instance. This is a tense moment. And Jesus had addressed them as this, Simon, son of John, which was his name. Notice that he addressed him, Simon, son of John, which was his name before he met Jesus. And the way the Lord addressed him intentionally called into question his title of Peter the rock. His personal message was this, Peter, do you remember your human weakness? Remember what you were like before I met you? The question was motivated by love, calculated to hurt, and it did. And Jesus also asked Peter if he loved him more than all the disciples, and Peter could not help but flash back to two weeks into the upper room. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will go and follow afterward. 
And Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay my life down for you. And we find that in John 13. Even though they all fall away because of you, I never will fall away in Matthew 26, 33. Jesus' responses are critical here, and it's why we do what we do at this church. Okay? Jesus says, feed my lambs, take care of my sheep, and feed my sheep. What does this say about Jesus? What does this say about Jesus, who Jesus is, and what does it say about Peter? Why would Jesus use these shepherding? Why would he use the lamb and sheep analogy? Why, why would he do that? You see, the analogy of a sheep is very common throughout the Bible. We're called sheep as, as the people of God. We're called sheep for a reason. Sheep oftentimes are not the smartest of animals. I don't know if anyone's been on a farm or grew up on a farm, but if you can validate that, Sheep are not the smartest of animals. Dale Bruner says it like I can. Shepherding brings the mind of the shepherd's staff and adds the responsibility to discipline, to keep in line, and to lead in and out. And it's important to note that Jesus does not say, love me. He here says clearly and repeatedly state that the way we love him is by taking care of them. This response of what Peter's responsibility are as a shepherd to love and to care for those Jesus has deeply brought into the fold, into the church, and to whom Jesus entrusts Peter. And Jesus speaks possessively of the lambs. Feed my sheep. This is Jesus' sheep. My lambs, my sheep, my sheep. You see, the way in which Peter will show his greatest love toward his Lord is by his deep love for those who Jesus brings into the church, into his church. In essence, Jesus is saying to Peter at the very end of the gospel, just before he's taken up to heaven, Jesus and Peter have this amazing encounter, and the last words are important, church. They leave an impression. And here again, Jesus is reinstating Peter after his lack of commitment, his fickleness, and to commission him to build the church and to love people. And it's as simple as this church. Very simply, Jesus deeply cares about people. Peter, here's how you're going to build the church. Here's how you will build my church. You will do it by feeding and loving my sheep. You're going to love people who I have entrusted into your care. Anyone who comes into your circles, I'm putting into your path. I'm entrusting them to you. Yes, you, you are the one and I specifically, as Jesus says this, you can imagine him, as I've chosen out of all my disciples to build the church. Yes, you, Peter, you're sometimes brash, a little rough around the edges. You chop ears off people. Yes, you, Peter, I'm not telling you to go. I'm, I'm Peter, I'm, I'm, I'm not telling you to go out. Jesus wouldn't have waited on the shore for his friends in the wee hours in the morning, brought bread, and started serving them and cooked breakfast for nothing. There was a real purpose to this. Jesus has been through so much with these men. They've fallen asleep just before he's about to be taken to be crucified. They've continuously doubted him despite his claims and backing up his claims. They have been by his side since day one, and yet they still doubt. Notice the brevity of the words here. There's no, like, sermon or lecture. Many of you are like, man, I wish this was the sermon today. Like, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. The service is over. The three sentences. Um, and it could be. There's no screaming at Peter. This is what, this Peter, this is what I've been telling you to do for years. This is why you followed me through your ministry for so long. Those three sentences that Jesus says to Peter are so carefully chosen words that get at the heart of what it means to be a disciple and then what it means to lead other people into this walk, into this Christian walk with the Lord. 
Consider this, where this lives in Jesus' ministry. This is at the very end of the very, very end of John's gospel. The famous last words of Jesus before the famous last words of Jesus. Kind of the end, kind of the, the pointed last words of what John wants us to know about who Jesus is, and it comes at the end of the gospel. You see, the Great Commission, the Great Commission is at the end of Matthew's gospel to go and to make disciples of all nations, to baptize them. And in John's gospel, it's to take care and love people who are in your spheres and circles of influence. And that's what it is. And they're one, also one and the same, too. Those two commissions, those two commissions aren't pitted against one another. There's a strong personal tone around a campfire. With all the disciples around, Jesus decides that call of Peter earlier in his gospel, that the affirmation of Peter's special calling is that he said, I will build on this rock, I will build my church. And that the way the church is built, the way the church is advanced, the way, Peter, that my name is going to be continue to be advanced is by loving people and feeding them. And Jesus gives Peter the task of shepherding the flock. The way the church is advanced is by loving people, by feeding them the word of God. Dale Berner says it the best way that I ever could. Jesus does not say that the mission will be advanced by any other kind of method other than the Holy Spirit in the, in the, by, the, by the work of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus doesn't say, Peter, go out and win the entire Mediterranean world. Instead, he says, take care of my people that I bring into your care. You make sure, Peter, that the little ones that I bring into your fold are fed with healthy and wholesome food. What you feed them means a lot to me because they mean a lot to me. They are my sheep and I am entrusting them to you. And notice Jesus does not even say, then love me. It's like the way in which you will love me is by loving them. What does it mean for us on the west end of Newcastle? What does it mean for us to love people whom God has brought into our care? Who are in your circles of influence? Who are those whom God has brought into your care, into your circles of influence? And maybe, maybe, maybe you're feeling like, man, I've kind of like, maybe you're thinking like, man, I've kind of failed in this area. I'm like a little bit struggled. I've struggled like kind of in this area a bit. And if you look and take at the news lady, news lately, you'll turn on any type of news station, you'll find a lot of hatred. You go on social media, you'll find it too. You go on the news channel, it says one thing about this and others, and one news station says the one thing about the others, and I'm kind of tired of it personally. But maybe we change the narrative, church, by loving people really, really well. Maybe we change the narrative. Maybe change the narrative. The love for others begins by the church extending the love of God to those whom God brings into our care. We are Peter. Jesus is saying that perhaps that changing the narrative of the state of our world begins with a change in the state of the people who go to church, the church, within the church. Have you, maybe, have we looked down upon those who are the down and out of our society? Have we looked down upon those whom society or even in our circles we would like to cast out? Or those in our spheres of influence, maybe that we would like to not, maybe the hurting or the brokenhearted or the failed. C.S. Lewis rightly understood the purpose of the church was to draw people to Christ and to make them like Christ. And he claims that the church exists for no other purpose. If the church isn't doing this, then all the cathedrals and clergy and missions and sermons are a waste of time. You see, to feed people is, to, is coming from the Word of God. 
True spiritual food comes from God's word. The nourishment that we need, we believe that this is the living word of God. That means that God, through his Holy Spirit, intended to write these words through human authors. Scripture is how we come to know God, and in turn, we love other people. You see, we will not stop preaching and teaching from the scriptures. We will not stop, we will not stop doing that here and feeding people the word of God. And if you've checked, you know, if you've, <laughs> sometimes we kind of look at it like maybe just another book, and it's a book, but it's a living word, and it is true spiritual food. The word of God is living and active and sharper than two-edged sword. I can promise you that. There's a guy in Japan in which less of half of a percent of the population is a Christian. There's a guy in Japan, the story goes that the guy in Japan found the Bible in a gutter, became a Christian, and is now part of the church in Japan. The Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. We find what who God is and we'll find what God is about through this book. And sometimes we take it for granted because we have access to it everywhere on our apps, our phones, everywhere. Maybe we have a ton of Bibles and translations in our house. We take it for granted for so many reasons, but we have access to it. And we have ample ways to get it. You name it. You see, the Scripture is meant to be just more than information into our brains. That Jesus says that Jesus with Peter, he doesn't question his knowledge of the Scriptures. He doesn't say, read your, read your Bible more, but he says, the more we read it, he says, read, doesn't say, like, read your Bible more. The, the call to Peter here is this, to feed my sheep, to love people, feed. The more we read this, we allow it to change us, and we allow it to change our heart. We allow it to change us, our mind, and our heart. God has things to say to us through this book. He has things to communicate to us. You see, discipleship will fall into place if we love. We, when we disciple, when we walk with people along this road, when we f- walk with, with the Lord and we walk with other people, if we care for the flock, it'll fall into place in our spheres of influence. And maybe you're in the shoes of Peter. Maybe you're like, maybe you've kind of denied Jesus, maybe not outright denied, but sort of have kind of fallen away a bit. Much like Peter's like, I don't know you, Lord. It might be a simple, yes, Lord, I love you. Maybe you've been a Christian your whole life. Maybe you've fallen away a bit. And Jesus is right there. He's ready at the campfire. Ready with open arms to feed you, to love you, to come and serve you. And maybe that's you. Maybe you say, Lord, I submit my heart to yours. I don't fully know everything, but I trust you. And like Peter, you know it's, God already knows what's in our heart. But we, we trust and we submit to the Lord. Like Peter, redemption happens every time. It doesn't matter how far you've strayed away. It doesn't matter how far you've gone. The good news of Jesus is he's always waiting for us to come home. As we said, as we said it last week, but it's connected to this loving people. As we said last week, we said, and we looked at this passage last week, they, the fishermen, they caught a bunch of fish. They go out, Jesus is on the shore, they catch a bunch of fish because they obeyed the words of Jesus. Why did they catch all those fish? Because they obeyed the words of Jesus. There's a call that they would be made, they will be fishers of men. I will make you fishers of men. In a, similar, in a very similar way, church, we obey that call to go and catch people. And we're reminded that as we obey the words of Jesus. We catch people and we obey what Jesus has told us, that he's promised us that we will do and we will catch people. We collectively together to go and to make disciples 
and to baptize. And we're reminded of this. As Jesus walked in the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, and they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. You see, the result of following Jesus is that we will find people. Very ordinary people. He, we will find people here in western Pennsylvania. Very ordinary people. And he does this. He brings them along for three years. He trains them. In those days, Jesus was highly respected and a rabbi. This was an in-person study, an intensive study with Jesus for three years. And the promise to this group of disciples, literally the imperative, Jesus says, I will turn you into fishermen who catch people. Jesus says, fishers of people, very, very personal with their line of work. And Jesus says that that word follow is live a life following me. And as soon as they hear Jesus' words, they obey it and left their families would have been entirely difficult for your whole life to know. I mean, your whole life, this is what you knew, this is where you were, your whole life was in this. Very difficult for them to do. And I pray that we would have the willpower when we hear Jesus' word, that we, maybe we hear it Sunday after Sunday and we kind of know what we should. I pray that we would leave behind what we should and follow what we ought to. And that's the Lord. Natural Christian progression of the follower of Jesus to repent, to continuously repent, and to turn to God. It says this, there's an author who says this, that the chief images of John 21, the fish and the sheep, both speak to us about the work of the church. We must gather up those whom Christ directs us and nurture those who live in his flock. The disciples are fishermen, seeking those Christ calls them to net, and shepherds, nurturing those who have joined the flock. But above all, they are people who love the church because they love Jesus Christ. Might we love people? Everything we do, everything we do, church, is to be devoted to loving God. This theme was extended <laughs> by, by Jesus by, in his Gospels. He said this, Matthew 22, when a lawyer asked him this question, thinking to try to trip him up, he said, Jesus, or he said, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? To which Jesus answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Nothing is of greater importance than loving God. And if we fail to take that seriously, we may find at the end of our lives that all of our works counted for nothing. Ashes on the altar. And this theme was also explicit in the dealings with Mary and Martha. Also another story it says in Luke 10, when Martha urged Jesus to send Mary into the kitchen to help and stop wasting time at the feet of Jesus, he answered, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, and God wants us to be doers and to feed his sheep. But he also wants us to be before we do, to sit at the presence of the Lord and to be in his presence and to sit in his presence. And we are to love first. We need to reflect honestly on our lives in light of Peter's words in verse 17. Did you catch that? Lord, you know everything. In Peter's previous affirmations of Jesus' omniscience, he used a strong word in the original language that Jesus knew every detail. But here he switches to a word that means intimate and personal knowledge, as if to say, Lord, you have walked with me. You know me personally in every way. And we can bank on that because he knows us in every way. And if we're honest about our love, we will affirm what exists and challenge us to enable to higher planes. Some of us will experience constant frustration because our priorities are wrong or they're out of whack or they're not in sync with what the Lord might have. And maybe it's a lot of other things that we think about. Maybe it's a lot of other kind of priorities in which we 
look at our life and we kind of place other things in priority other than loving God, first and foremost, highest form of love, the highest form of love that we can actually love is by loving God. And Jesus challenges us to do that, to love him above all else. And maybe there's a lot of other things that we think about more than what it means to love God. First things first, to love God and to love other people. Love God and love others. As I've kind of um, thought about this, as I've really wrestled through what this looks like for us as a church, but just for personal, on a personal level, if you can imagine yourself standing on that shoreline with Jesus, breakfast, the sea of eternity stretching as a shimmering backdrop, and Christ looks at you with knowing eyes and says, do you love me? Do you love me? Without comparing yourself with anybody else, do you love me? Do you have an affection for me? Do you, do you love me? We must show him love. We must love him above and beyond anyone or anything else. And in the end, did you notice this kind of, this little verse here at the end? Jesus was, um, Jesus said that very truly in verse 18, he says, wherever you, you were younger, you dressed yourself and where, went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you don't want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. In the end, church, Jesus was telling Peter the kind of death that he would die, a crucified death. He would die, Peter would die, as church history tells us, Peter would die on a cross, upside down. And he would die, church history tells us that Peter died on the cross. You see, at the end of the day, church, when the lights fade, the music fades, when everything goes out, we must bear the cross. We must deny ourselves, take up our cross, follow him. We are the people of the cross. We are not our own. And the way we love is by humbly submitting to the cross, living a cross-shaped life. And that often means a radical humility. Submitting to the cross, living a cross-shaped life. This life is not our own church. It's his. We are people of the cross, and far too often sometimes we are people who set out to kind of build our own kingdoms rather than be cross-shaped people, rather than being people who are marked by humility, marked by self-sacrificial love for others. We must love God and love others. Amen? Amen. Um, Josh, will you come up and play as we do communion? And um, Chuck, if you'll come up too as we serve communion together.